Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year, Lori. Hey, Peter. Let's all work together this year to make 2018 a great year for the animals by treating animals humanely and with respect and encouraging others to do the same. So you might be thinking about activities or things you might do to help non-human animals. Let's start with helping homeless or sheltered dogs and cats in your area. Okay, sounds good. Volunteering at your local shelter and things you can do there are dog walking, dog and cat socialization, learn how to do obedient training or help or learn how to bathe the dogs. All this can make the animals in the shelters more adoptable. Some shelters need help photographing the animals to put on their shelter's website or social media. And if you're a cat person, you can go into the play area with a cat or cats and offer them stimulation and play with them, getting them used to people around them. I think that's what I would do. But, you know, I was out photographing at our local shelter last year, and I observed something uh, very nice. There was a teenager, and she was being taught how to bathe one of the dogs. And I would suggest if you're not sure what you want to do, just go there and show up, talk to the volunteer coordinator, and they'll help you find something that you want to try. Or fundraise for your shelter if you don't want to volunteer in the shelter. A lot of people don't want to go to the shelter because it could be a depressing place for you. So raising money or fundraising for your local shelter is a great idea. Especially if it has something to do with wine. Make a wine event. Oh, yeah. Or beer. Or any alcoholic (laughs) beverage. (laughs) See, 2018 is getting off to a great start. (laughs) Such creative ideas. Collect blankets and towels or toys for the sheltered animals. Yeah, that's a good one for younger children, too. And if you really get ambitious and you want to help your homeless cats, you can learn how to take care and manage a community or feral cat colony. Right. Yeah, that's a pretty ambitious project right there, but certainly one that there's a great need for. And you can learn how to care for these cats, how to trap them, right? You can probably borrow traps from one of your local organizations develop relationships with the veterinarian who's going to fix them and vaccinate them, release them, how to care for a colony without encouraging more reproduction of the animals. There are so many things that you can do uh, in the field. And what you just described is called TNVR, trap, neuter, Vaccinate. vaccinate, and release. Now, here's a big one that really takes a special household, and that is to be a foster parent for dogs and cats in transition. This frees up space at the shelter and indirectly really saves lives. I know. I like that one very much. Maybe someday we'll get into that. I don't know. I don't think I could ever be a foster parent. I, I would just fall in love with all of them and want to keep them. I know. The term failed foster. Right. I would be a failure oh, of a foster. We need another house. We need an extension. <laughs> just like Tommy. Right. <laughs> we'll build an extension. Come on. <laughs> and something you can always be on the alert for is if you ever suspect animal abuse, make sure you report it to animal control or the police. Even an underfed dog or a malnourished dog or an animal tied up or exposed to the extreme elements or temperatures, it's always better to be safe. So report it. Most of the time you can remain anonymous, but most importantly, you could be saving a life. Now, when the weather gets hot, be on the lookout for dogs in hot cars. And children. Yeah, and human babies for that matter, if you care about human babies. (laughs) And be prepared to take action if needed. In the state of California, last year they passed a law. You can now lawfully break a window to save a dog in a hot car. Yeah. So think about that, even if you're 
not in California. And you can even help dogs and cats at your computer by sharing information and photos about dogs and cats in shelters who need to get adopted urgently. Yeah, I know. I've seen that in action. And there are a couple of people in our community who are really active doing that. And it's very powerful. It definitely helps. And again, you're indirectly helping to save lives by freeing up the animals in the shelters. You're allowing more room for other homeless animals. Yeah. And finally, and of course, when you want to add another dog or cat to your family, always adopt Mm -hmm. and never buy from a breeder or a pet store and fix your animals. (laughs) Fix your animals. Yes. That should be our new show. Fix your animal show. (laughs) When you encounter people walking their dogs on the street and they're not fixed and they're hanging down and it just, where have you been people? Oh, maybe I'll breed them. Right. Uh. I know. It's so annoying. People are so annoying. (laughs) All right. That gets us off to a good start for 2018, Lori. Maybe that should be our New Year's resolution. Not let people annoy so much. Oh, good luck. Okay, Lori, that's a good way to help your dogs and cats in the community if you want to get into that. There are things you can also do around the home to save or to help wild animals that might be living near you. Let me start by offering this, and that is you can help your birds by allowing them to see your windows in your home better by putting those decals on the windows. We were having that problem. Birds were slamming into our windows. Yeah, and I, I bet everyone thud. hates that. Yeah. So you can get these uh, specially made window decals and put them on or put anything on your windows. You can spray paint your windows. <laughs> Just uh, allow the birds to not think they are flying right through them. So that's a nice thing. Yes, that's a great one, Peter. I have a a great one as well. Be sparing or even eliminate the use of pesticides and herbicides and other chemicals in your home and landscaping. Many chemicals used outdoors to kill certain insects also harm birds and insects that are beneficial to us like bees and butterflies. So use as few chemicals in the outdoors as possible and never use rodenticides. Using poison bait to control rodents will not only kill the rodents in an inhumane manner, but will also secondarily poison the raptors and other predators that eat the sick or dead rodents. There are other more humane alternatives to control rodents that are bothering you. And here's another one, Peter. Never feed mammals such as deer, raccoons, coyotes, bears. Where I used to live, I had a neighbor that would put cat food out for the raccoons. Well, raccoons can also attract and kill small dogs and cats. So that's not a good idea. And feeding these wild animals teaches them to be dependent on humans and they end up losing their fear of humans. And this dependency and lack of fear of these animals means that they're more likely to come into conflict with people. And conflict with people almost always brings sad results for the wild animals. And on the same note, put litter in garbage cans and make sure they're sealed tightly. Food scraps by the side of the road can attract wildlife, which can get hit by cars. And of course, if you live in a bear country, you probably know this, but you have to use a bear safe garbage disposal that the bears can't get into. Now, I want to go back to cats a little bit, Lori, okay? And this is a reminder that we advocate, and almost all the cat groups do the same, make your cats full-time indoor cats. There are many reasons to do this. One is that if they're outdoors, they are subject to being hit by cars, to predation, to getting lost, to, to disease. So that's one thing you want to keep your cat safe. But the other thing is, remember, your cat, your cute little kitty is a predator. 
and your cat wants to hunt birds, lizards, and rodents, and maybe even bring some of them back to you. And you don't want that. So keep your cats indoors. We do too. And you know, we have an enclosed courtyard. We've talked about it before in the show that we specially uh, built our house around and we let the cats go there. It's got a bird netting top so the raptors can't come down into and the cats are very happy but it's not hermetically sealed and there are little gaps and occasionally a lizard will get in or even a mouse once in a while when it's very cold out and yes the cats are hunting them and they bring them inside and present them to us usually dead so even though our cats are really indoor cats that urge to hunt and that instinct is very present and Lori, here's another neat trick i learned when reading about hummingbirds you know hummingbirds are very attracted to the color red and the emergency pull on many garage doors is a string with a red handle and if your hummingbird gets a little disoriented and ends up in your garage you could keep on going after that red handle thinking there's nectar somewhere around there and then trying to fly upward because that's how they escape. So get rid of the red handle. You can paint it or you can cover it with black electrical tape or you can cut it off and just make a knot. But we've gotten rid of our handles when the hummingbirds were getting disoriented in our garage. So do that this year. Okay, here's a couple great things you can do when you're on vacation. Be a smart souvenir shopper. Oh, yeah. Don't buy illegal or protected wildlife. You can visit the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Travel and Trade page or the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora, that's CITES, for more information about this. And one example you may encounter, such as in Southeast Asia, would be materials made from tortoise shells. You've got to be real careful that uh, you are not buying tortoise shells. It's usually illegal. Right. You might think they're pretty earrings or a pretty charm on a necklace, but could be made from a protective species. Right. Keep your dogs on leash when walking in open spaces or areas where certain birds might be nesting. In our area, staying on the hiking trails with your dogs is really important because we have our bighorn sheep around us. And the dogs can really disrupt their migration and their mating behaviors. Right. You got one more for us, Peter? I do. And I want to share what I do. And maybe you can adopt this if you're not doing this already for the new year. And that is think about how you might relocate some of the critters, maybe not the most cuddly ones, but some that might come into your house around here. We get uh, snakes once in a while, scorpions, uh, spiders. We've had uh, tarantula in the house or two. Yeah, we still freak out a little bit about them, but we've got our tools and methods and uh Of course, you need a good lacrosse stick or two. So go out to your local uh, sporting goods store, get a lacrosse stick. And that's very convenient for scooping or brushing or gently, gently. And then you put it in your little box. So you've got to have a little box. We like to use the styrofoam cooler that that works or paper bag and go to your favorite neighbor and put it in their backyard. (laughs) No, no. Go to an open field and uh, release. And then you can document it, take a selfie or just a. Like I do, get five feet away and then start taking your pictures. It doesn't have to be lacrosse stick. It could be a tennis racket or a... Tennis racket's okay. Okay. But the point is, humanely transferring the animals to a safe place from your home is, is really a great thing to do. Yeah. And finally, drive cautiously through areas populated by wild animals, such as deer. This is a great way to show you care about wildlife. And I have to say, in my opinion, in the opinion of many animal lovers out there, the best way you can help animals 
and the environment and yourself, by the way, is to adopt a vegan diet. Oh, that's right, Lori. And there's no better time to start than now. And even if it's one or two days a week or one or two meals a week, start somewhere. Okay, we're going to be speaking more about diet and vegan diets, especially because we love it after the break. So stick around. You're listening to Animals Today. Before the break, Peter and I were talking about ways you can help animals for the new year. And we finished up talking about veganism. And you know, for me, if you're really going to be an advocate for the animals, logically, you should be consuming a vegan diet. So Peter, how many vegetarians and vegans do you think there are in the United States? How many? Like what percent or millions? What percentage? What percentage of of America or people living in America? Right. Oh, let's see. You're stalling here. Yes. (laughs) Six to eight percent vegetarian. Uh, And then I think the vegan number I've seen is like one and a half percent. Okay, you are very optimistic here. So this is from Vegan Bites, the webpage Vegan Bites, based on a sampling of 11,000 adults aged 17 and over. Only 2% of Americans are vegetarian. And only one in four vegetarians or Half of 1% of the U.S. population, or 1.62 million of us, is vegan. Okay. So let's talk about demographics. Who are these 1.6 million vegans? Peter, what would you guess would be the average age of today's vegan? Oh, how about uh, 30 years old? 42.1. Now, the vegans in their 20s and 30s only account for about half of all vegans, but the average age is 42.1. Now, what percentage of these vegans are female? Oh, boy. Uh, I'm going to say 71%. 74%. Pretty Mm. close. Why do you think there's more female vegans than male vegans? They're smarter. Yes, they are smarter. That's a good answer. Good answer. Okay. Religious affiliation. Do you think most vegans are Christian, Jewish, Buddhist, or Hindu, or do not actively participate in religion? Let's see. As a single, I'll say do not actively participate. That's correct. That's correct. Most vegans are not religious. 47%. Christian vegans, 34%. Jewish vegans, 3%. Buddhist or Hindu vegans, 9%. I would actually expect that number to be a little higher than it is. And like I said, those who are not religious, 47%. You know, we've spoken to the folks from Jewish Vegetarians of North America, and who would have guessed that number would be much higher by by now? It's certainly higher in Israel. Are you going to be talking about Israel? I am going to be. You're giving it away right now. Excuse me. (laughs) Political orientation. Would you guess most vegans are conservative? Liberal mm. or neutral? Mm. Boy, I wonder how they ask this question, but not conservative. I'm going to have to guess. I would say liberal. Yes, 52% liberal. Uh huh. And how many conservatives? 14% and neutral was 34%. Okay, all right. So probably no surprise to you, at least, Peter, that the typical vegan is female, left-leaning, and non-religious. Now, there are many more former vegetarians and vegans than people who currently eat this way. Only about one-third maintain the diet for three months or less, and more than a half, 53% of former vegetarians or vegans, adhered to the diet for less than one year. 
So it appears that people try this lifestyle on for size, and for whatever reason, half of them go back to their normal traditional diet after a year or less. Mm. So 88% of those who claim to be vegetarian or vegan have been so for a year or more. Okay, that statistic makes me wonder uh, what's the motivation for becoming vegan, whether you're doing it for health reasons, like to hopefully decrease your cholesterol or your or treat your diabetes or if you're doing it because of the welfare of animals and it would i would guess if you're doing it for the latter and you've seen the light you probably stick with it perhaps more than the health reasons i don't know what do you got well peter participants in the study were asked about their motivation for eating a vegetarian or vegan diet well the top three reasons are health animal protection and feeling of disgust about eating animals, mm. followed closely by concern for the environment and taste preference. Now, vegan demographics by country. Peter, earlier you mentioned about Israel. Israel has the largest concentration of vegans with 5% of the population indicated to be vegan. The other countries with the highest concentrations of vegans are Sweden, Japan, and Poland. That's interesting. That's, I wouldn't have guessed any of those. I definitely wouldn't have guessed Japan. Okay. And finally, you sometimes see these lists of the top vegan-friendly cities in America. Yes. Well, according to PETA, what do you think are some of the most vegan-friendly mm, cities in America? Okay. Uh, Seattle, Austin, Texas, uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles. How am I doing? You're uh, doing pretty good. Um, Not San Francisco, though, but really? the others are right. Oh. Portland, Oregon, Portland. Los Angeles, yeah. New York City, New York. Detroit, Michigan, Nashville, Tennessee, San Diego, Honolulu, Austin, Texas, Seattle, Washington, and Richmond, Virginia. Gee, I've been to uh, San Diego recently. There's lots of vegan restaurants there. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I was in Manhattan, and there's, and I got the feeling there's a lot of vegan stuff going on there, too. There's everything there. And Peter, speaking of food, Mercy for Animals posted some interesting things on their website. This was posted last year, 2017. A study commissioned by the Plant-Based Foods Association and the Good Food Institute revealed that the plant-based foods market topped $3.1 billion in sales and an overall growth in plant-based foods of 8.1% from the prior year, 2016. Now, plant-based meat substitutes is only 2.1% of refrigerated and frozen meat products sold. There was a 20% increase in sales of plant-based dairy alternatives, such as vegan cheese, ice cream, and yogurt, which together topped $700 million in sales. The plant-based milk category increased 3.1% from a year ago, whereas sales of cow's milk dropped about 5%. Yeah, that's a biggie. So is this a fad or are we seeing a larger global dietary shift away from animal products? Well, listen to this. NBC reported earlier in 2017 that Google searches for vegan, the word vegan, increased by 33% from 2015 to 2016. This is slightly higher than the increase from 2014 to 2015. And Lux Research expects plant-based proteins to make up a third of the global protein market by 2054. So it appears to me this might be more than just a fad. And whether the reason is concerned for the welfare of animals, the environment, or your health, you buying less meat, dairy, and eggs is 
great news for the billions of farmed animals who are subjected to abuse, extreme confinement, and brutal deaths, the cruelties inherent in factory farms. Thanks, Lori. After the break, I've got some new market research data on plant-based diets, and we'll be talking about the film Earthlings. Listening to Animals Today, your home for a serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of the show. Well, I'm proud to say we are now in our ninth year of weekly broadcasts, bringing you timely and critical animal news from all corners of the earth. Join us each week as we explore animal welfare and animal rights issues, as well as fun pet topics with fascinating guests and experts. And if you don't catch the show live on your local radio station, you can listen two other ways by going to the Animals Today website, www.animalstodayradio.com, or as a podcast on iTunes. It is so easy to subscribe on iTunes. And when you do, each week, usually on Sunday, a fresh show will download right onto your device. Pretty cool. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and thanks for listening. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to Animals Today. There is uh, an international food and restaurant consultant firm called Baum and Whiteman, and they have published a very interesting research report highlighting the growth of the vegan dining movement. In fact, they predict that plant-based diet is going to be 2018's dining trend of the year. Wow. Yeah. The report points to millennials and Gen Xers embracing plant-based foods as young adults and carrying that through their lives and sticking with it. Well, we'll see if that holds. Uh, And interestingly, they are seeing a divide in the food industry where the supermarkets are carrying more and more plant-based foods like you spoke about, the nut milks and the meat substitutes. And yet the restaurants haven't really adopted this in a big way yet. Also, the term organic, that is becoming less popular. It's being replaced by plant-based. Plant-based is the new organic they write. Maybe it'll replace gluten-free. That'll be even better. I'm (laughs) sick of everything gluten-free. And isn't it funny how people who work in restaurants often confuse those terms or think they're similar in some way? When you ask what sort of vegan options do they have on their menu, they often say, well, yeah, we have this. Oh, but we have a lot of gluten-free items. I know. Gluten-free is not vegan, people. Okay, so Lori, I just want to highlight a couple of examples of these meat substitutes that are uh, coming to the market. And these are so helpful in helping people transition to veganism because you're not sacrificing anything when you eat some of these products. It's really an exciting time. We're no longer, you know, eating raw vegetables and cubed tofu. It's getting very flavorful. There's a company called Impossible Foods founded by a physician researcher named Patrick Brown, and their product is called the Impossible Burger. 
and it's only available in restaurants so far. Its uh, main ingredients are wheat protein, coconut oil, potato protein, some other flavors. But most interestingly, they are adding natural heme, the substance that's responsible for the flavor and aroma in meat to a certain extent to their product. And it's made without any animals. Have you tasted that yet? You're talking about heme like in blood cells heme? Yeah, heme. Wow. Derived from soy. Mm. So I'm, No, I have not. I'd like to taste it. I don't know if I'm going to like it or not because I don't have a taste for meat anymore. We'll see. But that's a very interesting development. Is it supposed to look like heme or look like blood from the meat substitute? I think that's one of the features. You cut into it and you get a little red tinge of juice mm, coming out of I it. I don't think I'd like I that. Know. Well, and there's another uh, product called Beyond Meat. This is available in supermarkets. We should get some of this to try out. Its main ingredients are pea protein and soy protein. And interestingly, their leader is named Ethan Brown, another brown. And then, of course, many people are familiar with the brand Hampton Creek. They came out a few years ago with a pea protein-based product called Just Mayo. And now they have a new egg substitute scramble that's made from mung beans as its main ingredient. Mm. And I'll give that a try. I don't know if I'd eat mung beans otherwise. I'll give it a, give it a whirl. But that's just a little example of all these innovative products that are friendly to the animals, use vastly less resources to produce less water, less damaging to the earth. And it's just a reflection of hopefully where we're going right now. And Peter, you know what also goes along with this? People are finally starting to understand you don't need to eat meat to get sufficient protein and you don't need to drink cow's milk to get your calcium. That's right. You know, you look at those elephants, they're vegetarians. Right. They're doing fine. They're doing just fine. Yeah. Along with all the other large herbivore animals. Yeah. And Lori, there's one other uh, interesting thing that's happening now I need to share with you, and that is this phenomenon they call clean meat. Have you heard about this? No. Okay, this is a new technology that's springing up in various places whereby you start with an actual cell from an actual animal, maybe an epithelial cell, and you, you use it as a starting point to grow meat, to actually grow meat in the lab. And there are products that are being developed that are synthetic meat. For instance, there is a company called Memphis Meats. Uh, Recent investors include Bill Gates and Richard Branson. They create chicken, duck, and meatballs from animal cells. It's very interesting technology. We'll see how these things are adopted. How do they get the cells and from what animals? You know, I don't know exactly how they get the cells, but presumably it can be done humanely. Right. You don't have to kill right. an animal to get a cell. So you just ask the duck to open its mouth and get a little swab and then you're good. But, you know, I was listening, you know, I like that podcast with Sam Harris. Yeah. And he had a really interesting guest on recently. And one of the many, many topics they explored was this clean meat phenomenon. And uh, I think Sam suggested that it would give people potentially an opportunity to eat exotic derived meat. Like if you wanted to eat some rhino meat, you could do that in a humane way if if that's what you're into. Right. Interesting. Very interesting. Now for me, I don't miss the flavor of meat. I don't think I want to eat any sort of fake meat. I'm very happy with the taste of my veggies. But if you're a real meat and potatoes sort of person and you don't want to give up the flavor of your meats or your fish or chicken or whatever, this might be a good way to uh, make the transition. It may really reduce some barriers for a lot of people and uh, make the world a little 
happier place, eh? Well, I just think it's absolutely amazing technology where we can produce meat without harming any animals. I know. It's really an amazing time we live in. You familiar with the movie called Earthlings? Well, Earthlings was really groundbreaking, and if you have not seen it, it's celebrating its 10th anniversary. I would encourage you to view it. It's available uh, free online, and it really had such a big impact on the animal rights movement and inspired so many people to really take action and to really become aware of what's happening behind the scenes and out of sight regarding the way people abuse and use animals. It is narrated by Joaquin Phoenix. It's a product of Sean Monson. And interestingly, the music is by Moby. And the most remarkable thing about the movie is the incredible undercover video that is really being shown in such a extreme degree for the first time and shows the power of having video rather than just telling, telling the story verbally. The film begins by introducing speciesism, analogizing it to other oppressive ideologies like slavery, racism, Nazism, and sexism. But it then moves on to really the heart of the film, and it starts by just showing video related to pets and how pets are abused, such as in peppy mills and the consequences of overpopulation. Then it moves on to food and how we obtain food, what happens in slaughterhouses. It has some absolutely sickening footage of people working in the slaughterhouses, how they are abusing the animals, how they are. I mean, I don't know how you can describe these men on video other than being masochists or psychopaths. The misery that the animals endure when they're being transported, what happens to milk cows and veal. Uh, it moves on to seafood and reveals all the cruelty involved in seafood and whaling. And then we learn about clothing and leather. Of course, it goes on to depict what happens in the fur industry and then continues talking about animals entertainment, torturing bulls, what happens in rodeos and other activities such as hunting and fishing and vivisection. But as I mentioned before, the video is just so powerful and graphic truly it could be hard to watch but watch it you must if you haven't seen it at least one time i really encourage you even if you are fully aware of the issues you want to become acquainted with what exactly this movie is about it is so pivotal and has inspired so many people so it's the 10th year anniversary of the film earthlings watch it yourself and uh share it Peter, I know what's in this movie. I know how important it is, and I certainly would encourage others to watch it. But I'll tell you, there's just certain parts of this movie I could not see. If you haven't watched this film, I would encourage you to try doing so. At least listen to it and uh, peek at it once in a while. Watch as much as you uh, feel comfortable with. And it is designed to make you feel a little uncomfortable, but uh, give it a try. Peter, I know you're mentioning this because it's its 10-year anniversary. But do you think Earthlings is a milestone in the animal rights movement, like some people might think Blackfish was a milestone in terms of its impact on the whole movement? Well, yes, I, I definitely think it is a 
milestone of a film. It is a little different than Blackfish because uh, Blackfish had some real direct consequences that you could see over the next few years. Really, things happened. This film sparked the passion of so many people, uh, including people in media and anyone who watched it. So it's had an extremely important ground floor effect. So, Peter, what is the point of the movie? Okay, I guess I should have mentioned that. You know, there's no plot and there's no real story, per se, that leads you from a beginning to a middle to an end. It just is an overview of topic to topic of all the ways that humans abuse non-human animals, uh, making the point with this powerful video, which you rarely see, getting a glimpse into the, the abuse of people who work in this industry and uh, helping people open their eyes to what's really uh, happening in our world. You're listening to Animals Today. Stick around more with the show after the break. Welcome back to the show. You know, the other day was World Rabies Day, and Peter and I were talking about this, and we realized there are probably a lot of misconceptions about rabies. A few years ago, we spoke to one of the authors of the book, Rabid. You may not want to read 288 pages about rabies, but it was well-reviewed, and we really liked it. But we do get a little freaked out about rabies and the risk it may pose to us and to our dogs. In our backyard on some evenings at dusk, we see bats flying around and not sure why, but we just go inside when they come. Peter especially is afraid of being mistaken for moth and bitten. And then what do you do? And even though we wondered whether these flying shadows are really bats, maybe they're birds. About two months ago, Peter found a small dead one on our back patio. So we know they're real and they are here. Last year, a middle-aged woman from South Carolina died of rabies. That's really scary. So, like I said, the other day, September 28th, was World Rabies Day. So what do we need to know about rabies? Dr. Robert Reed is medical director of VCA Animal Hospital in Rancho Mirage, California, and he returns to speak with us. Hey, Robert. Hi, Lori. Nice to be back. Rob, okay, we know rabies is a dangerous virus. Tell us a little bit about the rabies virus. Well, as you probably know, um, rabies has been around for, well, as far as we know, 4,000 years, at least as far as documentation goes, and it's a, it's a disease that, that's still strong after all that time. Um, it can affect any mammal, um, of course, even people. Um, it's transmitted through bite wounds primarily. It's passed in the saliva, and it's prevalent in our environment in in wildlife and as you've touched on in california the the main carriers are bats um we don't see it fortunately in dogs and cats very often in this country because of public health efforts that began in the 1940s to control it largely through vaccination programs so we're very fortunate that it's rare for us to encounter uh, rabies in a dog or a cat or even another domestic animal, and even more rare in people, but it hasn't gone away after thousands of years. It's still there. It's still a risk, and efforts to control it still continue and should. And the untreated disease is pretty gruesome, isn't it? 
It is. It's almost invariably fatal in people and in other species as well. It causes progressive neurologic disease. So typically, Robert, you really don't know if the animals that bite you or attack you is rabid. So what are the steps one should take? Well, fortunately, our society has measures to address that. Um, every community has an animal control agent or agency uh, that will address that. And in fact, I think it's important if the person is bitten by a wild animal or even a dog or a cat and they don't know anything about it, uh, to contact animal control. And, and they have mechanisms in place to address that concern. Does it help to capture the animal if you can? It definitely does. Uh, of course, anyone who does that should do it safely or perhaps even better should contact animal control and have them do it if that's a possibility um, so that the animal can be tested for rabies. Uh, and of course, a, pet, uh, a pet's vaccination status has a, a large impact on how that situation would be handled. So if this does occur, the vaccine, it's called uh, post-exposure prophylaxis. It, how bad is that? Well, post-exposure rabies vaccination is not as bad as what we tend to think of. You know, historically, we were worried about the shots in the belly and the painful injections that go on for weeks. And I don't really think that's, that's applicable nowadays. The injections that are given are given into the muscle. I think they are painful. They cause a lot of soreness, and everyone would prefer to avoid them um, if they could. And they are expensive. Uh, but, of course, you know, the alternative of worrying about whether your exposure is going to lead to rabies or, of course, getting the disease is unthinkable in comparison. Talk about dogs and cats having rabies. How common is that in the U.S.? Well, it's not very common. And I'm more familiar with our own area, and it's been decades since uh, the Coachella Valley has had a reported case of rabies in a dog or a cat. It is still present in bats, and, and it does pop up every now and then in a bat. Uh, but we haven't had a, a case that we know of in a dog or a cat for a long time. Now, the recommendations for unvaccinated dogs and cats who are possibly infected are, are pretty harsh, huh? Potentially. You know, I think the key thing to remember um, as a pet owner with, with regard to rabies and, and, and issues that come up like that is that the decision about what happens to your pet is going to be made by representatives of animal control agencies uh, as to whether the pet goes through a quarantine, how long the quarantine is. I think in very rare instances, euthanasia, but it's much more likely to be a quarantine situation and the type of quarantine and whatever decisions are made about the pet will be affected by the vaccine status. So it's really important that we maintain um, uh, current vaccines for rabies, against rabies in dogs and cats. Even though our, the state of California does not require it in cats, it is required in dogs, currently is not required in cats, it's still recommended. So Dr. Reed, the vaccination is required in dogs. Is it safe? It is a safe vaccina uh, vaccination. You know, we, we don't really encounter reactions to rabies vaccine with any greater frequency than other vaccines, and it's extremely infrequent in dogs. And now in cats, you know, um, the question about rabies vaccination in cats uh, has a little bit of a, a different nuance because cats don't respond exactly the same to vaccinations as dogs do, and in the past have had 
some fairly unique types of reaction that can occur months or years down the road after the vaccination occurs. So the vaccine manufacturers have made some adjustments in the type of vaccines that they provide, and we now have alternatives for cat vaccinations against rabies that really don't present any great any greater risk than the vaccine for dogs, which is very low. And um, and I think that the risk for rabies and for animal control related problems, uh, especially through exposure to wildlife, um, outweigh the risks of the vaccine. And how often are we supposed to give the vaccine in dogs? To dogs in California, it's every three years. That's a regulation. Uh, the vaccine may have protection beyond that, but it's regulated to be given every three years in adult dogs. It's given once uh, in young dogs after the age of 12 weeks, and then that is repeated one year later, and then it's every three years. In cats, it depends on which vaccine you use. There are one-year and three-year vaccinations against rabies for cats. Very good. Dr. Robert Reed, thank you so much. You're welcome. Hi, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and I want to thank you for listening to Animals Today. Make sure to visit us on animalstodayradio.com, where you will see all our previous shows and where you can download them free. That's animalstodayradio.com, or you can listen on iTunes. Also, make sure to like us on Facebook and join the discussion. Animals Today gets a lot of its support from the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. And I hope you'll consider making a donation to help pay for the ongoing broadcast of Animals Today. Each week on Animals Today, we strive to bring you the highest quality, most up-to-date information about all animals, how we treat them, and their place in society, while promoting greater respect and kindness towards them. So thanks for your support. That website again is aianimals.org. And thanks for listening.